passage this morning comes from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 21, verse 12 through 15. Jesus entered the temple courts and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. The blind and the lame came to him at the temple and he healed them. And when the chief priests and the, lead, the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did and the children shouting in the temple courts, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. This is the word of the Lord. Well, so good morning, Advent Hope. It is good to see familiar faces as well as new faces today as we worship together. I am especially honored and pleased to be uh, joining students, uh, so welcome this weekend uh, for this kickoff for the academic year. You know, I got in town on Thursday night and I was walking the neighborhood. Um, we lived up here, as, as, as you shared, and I can see that the neighborhood has in many ways changed. Uh, for example, the first place I looked for, where I wanted to eat dinner actually, was the uh, little pizza place. My love affair with pizza began here as a graduate student, I think. Um, a little place called Roma is right around the corner here. And this place sustained my soul and my stomach for many years. And I was heartbroken to see that it's no longer here, right? So I know, what's going on? Um, I do see, though, that there are some things that have not changed. And one of those things is um, the ministry of this community and its outreach and love for uh, college students as well as people here uh, making a life, making a career, maybe just passing through. So that has remained consistent and I am so uh, just joyful to see that, also so deeply grateful to this community for the way it opened its arms to me and Angela, like I don't even want to say how many years ago, but. <laughs> Um, it, it really is a special place uh, in, in my heart, my life, and it's just so good to be back. So, Last night, I also was privileged to meet some of the college students that are here in this city uh, studying. I try to hang with them. Uh, I met some students studying computer science, medicine, psychology, and I, I walked in and tried to participate in, in this one conversation where Calculus 3 was being discussed. Uh, this, as a liberal arts, arts person, um, I did not take that class. I, th I, I think I stopped, I tried Calculus 1, and I don't, know, I don't even remember how that went, except that it was hard. Um, so anyway, amazing students here, uh, doing amazing things, and on the path to, to make, uh, I think, distinguished careers, uh, serving God and, and, and community. You know, but one of the, the theme that we're focusing on this weekend, to bring those of you who weren't there last night up to speed, uh, Pastor Stephen and I were talking, is this theme of uh, love in action and trying to envision what this year could look like uh, if uh, we were to kind of think about very intentionally love and living it out uh, on campus, also maybe within this community, and maybe for some of you who are in your careers already in the workplace, right? So love in action. And so last night we looked at a story in the Gospels of Jesus um, doing something amazing uh, for a widow, the Bible says. And we learned that love in action involves uh, seeing people okay, that maybe others don't see, um, being moved emotionally, having compassion, and then reaching out, uh, doing something about it. 
So today, and actually this afternoon at Central Park, I'm hoping that we can kind of um, get real about how that's actually pretty hard to do, right? And as we attempt to do that, we're going to encounter hurdles and obstacles. And today, I'd like to, in light of the passage we just read, explore the question of, of an obstacle that many of us may encounter as we seek to love and put love into action. Now, this may sound odd, like what kind of obstacle are we going to talk about? But uh, we're all gathered here for this very thing, some of us. Uh, you know, organized religion. Church. Some people, a lot of people, in church, out of church, one foot in, one foot out, are asking this question. They're saying, hey, you know, does religion help me or hinder me from putting love into action? And maybe that's not the exact way you or your friends or somebody might put it. Uh, sometimes it goes kind of like this. Uh, hey, so do you go to church? And the response, maybe you've heard it, maybe you've said it, is, well, you know, I grew up X. Or uh, I'm spiritual, but what? Not religious. Yeah, you've heard it. Okay, spiritual, but not religious. You know, there was a time when people used to think that being spiritual was synonymous with being religious. And they thought both kind of connected to like moral development and being a good citizen and, and person in the world. It's very interesting. Today now, people are like, no, religion and, uh, and spirituality are like two separate things. And spirituality maybe, but religion probably not. Right? So we're on a journey. We're asking this question of, hey, what is the value of gatherings like this? And for the co college students, I know many of you are on a journey. Maybe you've grown up in a home where your parents have talked about it a lot. You've kind of gone through the motions, and now you're here, and you're like, hey, what am I going to do about all this? Okay? Uh, how, do I, how do I relate this to this religion thing? And if, if you grew up in a Christian home, to church. Many people are coming to the conclusion that, well, at best, religion is irrelevant. And at worst, it is at odds with being a good person, to putting love into action. And if we're going to be honest, frankly, uh, you turn on the news, you hang around long enough, um, religious people and institutions seem to provide plenty of empirical evidence for this conclusion. So how are we to relate to the church? I want to grapple with this question. I know it's a tough question. Uh, with you in light of the passage we're looking at today, because this passage is about Jesus um, interacting with organized religion in his day. And I think if we look at it, it's actually a pretty tough story. <laughs> we, we can try to unpack it a little bit and draw some insights for our own questions and, and lives today. Three principles I want to share with you from this story that I think we can draw to answer this question about how to relate with religion. First principle, love in action stays focused on love in action. What do I mean by that? Well, so let's talk about the story in its historical context. Uh, the temple, uh, what is it? Today, if you were to visit the city of Jerusalem, you would see a part of that temple still there, just one wall of it. People refer to it as the Wailing Wall. Maybe some of you have been. The rest of the edifice, which was magnificent in its day, uh, was burned in 70 AD. Rome came in and just burned it to the ground. In Jesus' day, it was called the Second Temple, actually. Uh, Herod had rebuilt it, given it a facelift, kind of like the renovations that are going on here. 
And it was the pride of the nation, pride of the people, the temple. You know, it might not have been as glorious as when Solomon had built it all those years ago, but it was pretty good. The temple was where the power was, the money was. It was in the capital city. And the people, there's was, there was politics surrounding the temple and who was running it and, you know, the way things were done. Uh, the people who ran the, the temple, some people will refer to them as the Sadducees, uh, they, you know, didn't like the fact that Rome was there, but they had come to the conclusion that, you know, Rome is here and we're going to do business. Now, those who weren't in power, as you might imagine, were scheming, <laughs> dreaming of the day when the day of the Lord would come and those people that are corrupt and running the temple would be destroyed and judged, and, and then they would come in and run the temple. So everybody, I mean, the thing is, everybody was fantasizing about the temple, Okay. Now, it's very interesting, in light of that, uh, looking at Jesus' own relationship to the temple in his day. It's fascinating because it's only mentioned twice in the scriptures, maybe three times, actually, if you count the infancy story. Jesus is dedicated at the temple. Then you don't hear much about it. And then at 12, he shows up for a little Bible study with the rabbis. And then the third story, and this story is actually found in all four Gospels, is Jesus, well, he just read it walking in and flipping over tables. <laughs> the image of him doing that, actually, this rendering here, I think, is striking because it's so different from the one that maybe some of you are familiar with. Jesus maybe with, like, a little lamb that he's holding or uh, smiling there with, like, a very friendly smile. Yeah. Here, Jesus is, oh, man, it just people are disturbed by this image. <laughs> Jesus has a whip in his hand, according to one of the descriptions, and for people who don't like the idea of Jesus using a whip, uh, scholars have tried to argue, you know, he's not using it on people. He's using it on the animals. There are large animals there that are in the courtyard, and Jesus is trying to clear them out, okay? But these are the only times Jesus actually, we have recorded, entering the temple and engaging it. And so what is Jesus doing the rest of the time? Matthew 4 provides a nice summary. Um, Matthew 4 is like this is the beginning of his account of Jesus' ministry. And he tries to sum it up on this is what it looked like. Okay, and I'm just going to read this because it gives you an idea of what's going on the rest of the time. Jesus went throughout Galilee teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures and the paralyzed, and he healed them. Now notice where Jesus is. Jesus is not in Jerusalem. Jesus is not at the temple. Jesus is not engaged in politics. Jesus is doing what? Uh, some people might call it medical evangelism <laughs> or something. Uh, he's out there like healing people, and it's, and it's very interesting. It's not just like Jewish people. News is spreading him, uh, about him all over Syria. And that's, that's interesting. So Jesus is in northern, north, the northern region of Judea. He's working with people who don't live in the capital. Don't live in Manhattan, okay? <laughs> they, they don't live in Manhattan. And he is working with people that are like from the other side of the tracks. People that are, some people are like, Ooh, really them? Jesus <coughs> shows us that 
love in action keeps the focus on love in action. Right? The other stuff is important, but it's not the main thing. Jesus did not let the politics and the dysfunction of organized religion of his day get him off focus to what God had called him to do. Um, He distinguished between organized religion and something he talked about a lot. He talked about something called the kingdom of God. Right? And he would say, the kingdom of God is at hand, and then he would proclaim it and demonstrate it. This is what it looks like when God's will is being done in the world and in the lives of people. People who are broken, who are sick, are made well, they're made whole, they find community. And then he would say, there it is right here. Love in action stays focused on love in action. Secondly, love in action, I would suggest, includes those at the margins. Let's go back and do a little bit more historical context about the temple and its original purpose. One of the things that happened to the temple, one of the main purposes of it, was it was a site of ritual purification. So people would bring offerings to God. Some of them would be thanksgiving offerings. For other times, it would be offerings of of repentance repentance and forgiveness. And this involved, back in those days, animal sacrifice. This is one of the reasons why animals are here at the temple, because if you might imagine, if you're traveling from long distances to try to get to the temple, uh, it's hard to keep an animal healthy, right? It's, It's logistically difficult to transport an animal, especially if it's a larger animal. So the temple, the, the good people running it, are providing a service to everybody that comes by having a certified animal ready for you at the temple. Now, the ritual purification is important. It's one major aspect of, of what goes on there. The second thing, though, and perhaps more importantly, is that the temple was supposed to be a place where people could come and experience God's presence. The psalmist David uh, envisions a, a day when the temple would be built, uh, and he, he cries out like this in the book of Psalms, Psalms 27, verse 4, one thing I ask of the Lord, this is what I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and seek him in his temple. Purification, presence. Well, who is this for? Another interesting question. Who is the temple for? Well, simply put, the temple, the way it was envisioned first was it was supposed to be for everyone. The people, and not just the Jewish people, actually. The prophets envisioned one day people from all the nations gathering at the temple, Jew and Gentile, people of all ages, all backgrounds. And when you see what's happening in the temple is, well, Jesus kind of walks in. I think he's seeing that this is not what is happening here. Now, you can can imagine what's happening. We've talked a little bit about the, uh, the animals that are there. And as you might imagine, if you have something like, like that being provided, uh, there might be a service charge. So imagine that. But think about um, the money changers. Some people, when they first hear this story, if you're not familiar with it, you're like, what are money changers doing there? What's that all about? Well, um, this was the reasoning behind it. It might sound a little strange. But the idea was that, look, if you are going to buy an animal that you're going to give to God, 
the money you use to buy that animal should be clean money, uh, not dirty money. Right? So what is it that made money back then dirty? Well, I'll show you an image here that kind of, I think, very clearly illustrates what's the concern. This is a coin from that era, and you see that uh, on this coin you have an image, and that image is of Caesar Augustus. Okay? Um, and he actually refer, liked to refer to himself in this way. He would say, the son of God. That's <laughs> the title that he had for himself. Uh, these uh, Caesars are very humble. Okay? On the reverse side of a lot of these coins was a picture of a Roman deity, Hera, Zeus. Okay? Um, and the temple leaders were concerned, like, you can't use that money to buy something you're going to give to God. Right, so what we have to do is we have to convert this money into holy money, temple money. And some of you are nodding. You're like, ooh, I've, I've, I've seen a scheme like this. If, if, yeah, if you have traveled overseas, you kind of know at the airport, if you've forgotten to go to the bank and get your, your funds transferred, like what happens at the airport? You go up to the little, little machine or the little station, and you're like, I want to change these dollars to something else, and what happens? There's the exchange rate, and what else is there? There's the fee. Or the exchange rate is like really different, and you're like, wait a minute, that's not what it says online. Okay, so there is a, there is an ex there's a, a surcharge for converting the money. Okay, and so you can imagine what's happening here, and this is what Jesus walks in on, is that, hey, like, so you guys, you guys have set this stuff, stuff up. The, um, the temple, which, if you want to get this, imagine this, is, is the size of like a football field. Um, the outer court. That outer court um, is called the court of the Gentiles. And why, why it's referred to uh, it that way is that that's the furthest you're allowed to go in if you're not Jewish. Okay? So you have the court of the Gentiles, and apparently there's all this stuff going on. Okay? So you could talk about, well, the Gentiles are being excluded from the presence of God by all the activity that's taking place. The other thing that's really become, that becomes obvious of who's being excluded is, is the people that come in when the money changers and the business people go away. Who comes in? Did you catch that in the, in the text? It's the, the lame and the sick. They come in, and what does Jesus do? Jesus heals them, right? The temple becomes a place of healing where people experience God's reality in their life. Okay? Who else comes in? This is kind of makes some of the, the, the leaders upset a little bit. It's the children. The children are running around in the courtyard and they're singing. Okay? And the people are like, wait a minute, this is what's going on, right? I'll tell you what, you know, living here in the city made me read this text in a very different way. Because I, I remember living here and, and you know, during the week around like just concrete, right? And on the weekends, going out to Central Park. And having this one place in the city where, like, you know, pets, children, adults can run, <laughs> you know, in the city. And I just love this image that the temple is that place. The temple is that place, and when, when it's been cleared out, the kids can come and sing. And, and, and that is part of what God wants. So who's being excluded? Well, all the people that the temple is for. Um, the Gentiles, the sick, the poor who can't afford the animals, 
the children who want to play. Those are the people that are not there, right? And so when you see Jesus going in there and doing this thing, uh, he's not throwing a temper tantrum. Rather, he is making space who are being blocked off from access to God. He's creating space for people at the margins. Love in action includes those who are at the margins. Third principle, third thing we learned from the story, love in action extends to religious people too. So you may be wondering at this point, wow, do we get to like kick some tables over after service? Uh, do we get to kick some people out? Not exactly. I actually think if you're going to read this story in its context, the full context of the gospel narrative, you have to come to the conclusion that this is not a uh, one-time encounter Jesus has with the system. Uh, he has been, he grew up in the system. He's been a part of it for 30 years, and for three years, he has been in conversation with leaders and, and the people, encountering them in different ways. We encounter images of Jesus crying over the city of Jerusalem and its leaders, and talking about loving the city and wishing to gather, gather it under you know, the wings like a mother hen, right? Jesus is weeping over the city. And I think you have to, to read this story in light of those stories. I'm also reminded of the way that some actions can be misunderstood, uh, even though they're motivated out of love, to be something that is hurtful. And I think of actually, uh, you know, my daughter when she was much younger, when she was actually an infant, and when she would get sick. And um, we're in a situation here because she was too little to understand anything we say to her. We couldn't understand what she wanted, but she was congested. You know, she couldn't breathe. Her, her nostrils were all stuffed up. And there's this question, so those of you who are parents, uh, how, do you, how do you help your kid who's got a cold? Maybe COVID, right? Well, so, you know, as a young parent, we discovered, parents, my wife and I discovered actually this invention that people refer to as the nose Frida. You guys know what this is? Okay, some of, some of you know from the chuckles. Those of you who are like, what's that? Well, maybe they've come up with something even better. But uh, what they came up with is like this, like, this, like this bulb thing. And then there's like a tube that comes out, like a straw. And then one, one, one end, the long end, is the one that the parent puts in their mouth. And then the short end goes into your child's nose. Okay? Now what happens next? Yeah, breathe in. Okay? <laughs> breathe in, it sounds just like you're slurping a milk, milkshake. Okay? And yeah, they, that's, that's the image. Okay? But you know what it does? It clears, it clears everything out. And I remember when I would do this uh, for my daughter, she didn't understand what was, what was happening. Okay? And she, I think actually, if she can remember all the way back then, might have experienced it as something, I don't know, that, that was like not out of love. Okay? And I, I look at this story here and what Jesus is doing, and I, I, I love this image that, that maybe Jesus is, he, he's there trying to clear out 
of the airwaves. We're trying to, to give spirit, uh, the spirit room to move. Okay? Um, and for the, the temple and the people of the temple uh, to be spiritually resurrected. Love and action includes religious people too. This is a challenge for me, and this may sound weird coming from a person who teaches religion, <laughs> but you know, like it's really easy actually sometimes to be sympathetic and nice to people who are very different. People maybe at the margins. But man, that's, what's really hard is when you find somebody that's you know, just like a little too religious, a little too certain, too conservative, too rigid, right? And we're kind of like, man, forget them. We want to change them. And if we can't change them, we're like, man, maybe they'll leave. I'm reminded by this story that, you know, at the end of the day, uh, Jesus is the one that changes people. He is actually the one that has the right to change them and even confront them because Jesus is the one that pays the price. He's the one that gives his life for everyone, including them. I'm reminded that changing people, both religious or irreligious, however we define those terms, that's Jesus' job. He can do that. He has the right to do that, if you want to use that language, because he is the one that gave his life. Our job is to love people that Jesus loves. There's one more story about a religious leader that actually fills me with hope. In some ways, I guess I identify with this guy. His name is Nicodemus, a religious leader, a man of the system who, who kind of comes to Jesus at night because, ah, you know, I don't know, why is, it, why is he there at night? People wonder this. Many people think it's because he's a little embarrassed. He wants to keep the relationship on the DL, right? He doesn't want anybody to know what's happening, and he tries to talk to Jesus, actually, about religion, have a nice intellectual conversation. And Jesus is like talking to him about other stuff. He's like, let's talk about the spirit and the things of the spirit. John chapter three is where we find the passage. It's a snapshot of kind of people not really understanding each other. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear it sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. And <laughs> Nicodemus, Mr. PhD, uh, what are you talking about? How, how can this be? And the rest of the conversation, you can read it uh, this afternoon if you want. Jesus is like, Nicodemus, like, you're the teacher. Like, you teach people. You don't know this? <laughs> we don't really hear much about Nicodemus uh, after this conversation. But he does make an appearance at the end of the, the Gospel of John, twice. Nicodemus pops up to speak up at Jesus' trial. When he sees this trial that is corrupt, <laughs> uh, unjust, he, he speaks out, does something courageous. He says, like, what are you guys doing? Right? So somebody who is meek and overly concerned about others think is all of a sudden on his path to being somebody who's courageous. 
right? The other time we catch a snapshot of Nicodemus is Jesus' death and Jesus' dead body on a cross. Nicodemus is one of the few who steps up and helps take Jesus' body off the cross, helps uh, provide a, a proper burial. Nicodemus is someone who's becoming generous in addition to courageous. And this story gives me great hope that, you know, you may be on the track where you're like, you know, hopelessly religious. <laughs> That's okay. Uh, Jesus loves you too, and there's hope. Um, God can transform people to be spiritual and religious, like Nicodemus. So where does this leave us? I want to suggest to you that the real issue isn't uh, religion versus no religion. If we had more time, I'd argue that everybody's religious. That's like another topic. Uh, but I think we can differentiate, and this is helpful, between religion that leads people away from Jesus or religion that seeks to replace Jesus by, by becoming everything and religion that leads people to Jesus. There's a, a passage that, that has really helped me a lot, uh, the Apostle Paul in Corinthians. Uh, he's not referring to religion here, but he's referring to himself, his body, his ministry, and uses his imagery we have this treasure in jars of clay, but then he distinguishes the jars of clay from the treasure, right? That is from God, he says. Don't mistake the vessel for the treasure. This for me is a really helpful distinction. Uh, there is the medium through which God communicates the gospel, the good news of Jesus, uh, and then there is the gospel, the treasure. The church at its best is a place where people can come and encounter that Jesus who is alive, who sends his spirit and can still change people. This is a passage for me, uh, bring it close to my own life, where you know, this, these questions of you know, what do you do with religion, you know, I, for me, I, in some ways, started asking these questions when I was in college. And, in some ways, that's why, how I ended up in graduate school, <laughs> trying to figure it out in my head. Um, but, you know, um, let me just say this. There are answers for questions like that. You might not need to go to grad school to figure it out, but there are people who can direct you to resources if you're a student trying to figure that out. But, you know, I've become a parent, as I shared with you, and the question for me looks a little different. And the, the question that my wife and I, we ask ourselves, is kind of like, how much of this do we want to pass on to our daughter? Do we, do we teach her the stories? Do we uh, bring her to church? Does she go to Sabbath school? <laughs> right? The questions we're having. And it's, this, it's a version of this question, which is like, what are we going to do with this whole like, religion thing? This distinction has been helpful to me when I bring her to church. I'm not, I'm not trying to bring her to church for the sake of the church. I'm bringing her to church because I hope that somehow through all the things the community does together, they will encounter the person at the center of it, right? Jesus, who demonstrates to us what God's love looks like in action. I hope that wherever you are, whether you're a student trying to figure out 
how this comes together while you're a student. Maybe this year you're trying to piece it together, or maybe as a professional, you're kind of like, yeah, I'm on this journey, and my coworker wants to talk about this stuff to me all the time. Or maybe you're kind of like, yeah, I'm checking it out for the first time. What's this all about? I really do hope that you can differentiate between the treasure and the jar of clay, and that as you draw closer to the love of God that has been demonstrated to us and for us in the life of Jesus, something that also inspires you to live lives of love and action. I want to invite you to consider that invitation that comes to us as we continue to worship and sing together.